HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Buy Right Market, a San Francisco food institution since 1940 focused on creating community through food. For more information, visit www.buyrightmarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. What do you remember about the Lewis and Clark expedition? Well, if you're like me, you probably knew it was an exploration trip of the Northwest Territories, but little else, right? Well, come to find out, a whole world of food opened up, and we're going to learn all about it today on A Taste of the Past. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, here on Heritage Radio Network. And indeed, the Lewis and Clark expedition in the early 1800s. Hmm. It was a three-year expedition, so you knew they had to take a lot more than just trail mix. Well, my guest today is Mary Gunderson from Minnesota, and she is a food writer and a culinary historian. And her expertise lies in how food history impacts today's food choices and health, and she has a special interest in the Lewis and Clark journey, pioneer farms, the cowboy era, Native American agricultural practices, and Thomas Jefferson's vision and practice of agriculture. Mary's the author of The Food Journal of Lewis and Clark, Recipes for an Expedition, and she is here today to share with us the food of that incredible journey. Welcome, Mary. Hello, Linda. Hey, nice to be with you. Well, it, this is uh, this is really an eye opener for me because, as I say, I, do, I think we all studied the Lewis and Clark expedition at some point in our in our elementary school education, and but never did I realize the the food impact that it had. What got you interested in in studying this area? Well, it's pretty interesting, isn't it, to think that in in eighteen o three to eighteen o six. A group of men and one woman and a dog and a baby crossed the United States. And when you think about it, food fueled their journey. Food was the fuel. I grew up along the Missouri River, 
and have always been interested in food history and was looking around and realized that there was a bicentennial coming up and I was fascinated by what they ate, how they fueled their journey, and thus the book. Uh-huh. Well, in your um, course of study, what I mean, you, you found that they did keep a food journal? Well, no. My book is called A Food Journal of Lewis and Clark, mm. of, of the Lewis and Clark Expedition, and they wrote about food almost every day. So food wasn't separate from the rest of their exploits. Lewis wrote often in his journal, and Clark wrote almost every day about the journey itself, and he included what they ate. As I started reading it, I realized that uh, previous historians, as such as Bernard DeVoto and others who talked about the expedition in the past and went through the journals, they pulled out some highlights of food that they ate, but they didn't really explain that food was the heart and soul of, of the, the trip. And, of course, we are much more tuned into food in the last 20 years than we have been at any time in the last 200 years. Everybody wants to know about it. That's true. So what they ate starts to make a lot of sense, when you, and then you realize what a difference it made to the journey. They packed a lot of food with them. I call that the food they carried with them. Then they hunted and gathered food along the way, and finally, they traded food with the people they met along the way, the uh, 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 people of the various Indian tribes all well, that's, the way the Pacific Ocean. Right, and that's what I wanted to back up and kind of and, and go through and describe, is that um, you know, how do you prepare for a three-year journey? Obviously, <laughs> obviously, you, you can't pack enough food for three years. And um, so it made sense that they, they were going to find foods along the way. But then... but. Backing up to planning for this journey, I mean, it was really, uh, it was a wish of Thomas Jefferson's, right? And we know Thomas Jefferson, we know from all the, the studies and all his papers that he was quite the, the gourmand and the connoisseur, and he was interested in food. He actually, aside from opening up the Northwest Territories, you mentioned that he asked them to keep a log of all the plants and the food and, and natural items. Yes. Jefferson, as we know, was interested in everything, and he never traveled over the, over the mountains himself, but he had this vision of what the rest of this continent looked like, and he wanted to control it. He didn't want the British or the Spanish to get control of that land. He also imagined that there was an all-water route across the country, and that the expedition found very soon to be not true and that, that, that the trip would actually take them longer than they thought. Mm. When they left, they had no idea how long they'd be gone or how long it would take. So Lewis spent two years with Jefferson as his secretary. He went to all the dinners. He met the congressmen. He met all of the important people, including Jefferson's friends who were members of the American Philosophical Society. And among these people was Dr. Rush, who we know as Rush's Pills, and people who were eminent scientists of the day. They poured their knowledge into Lewis's head during the time he was in Washington, and then when he went to Philadelphia for a shopping trip, in effect, to buy some of the main provisions for the trip. That included 3,500, that's a ton and a half, pounds of pork products. Hmm. They carried portable soup with them, they carried cornmeal, they carried flour, and, and they carried sugar, 
And of these things, they just kind of approximated how much they would have to have for some period of time. And it was a total guess, really. They also carried whiskey with them because whiskey was part of the way they paid the members of the expedition. Oh, interesting. (laughs) And it was a good trading tool, I would imagine, too. (laughs) Well, no. At that point, they didn't trade the whiskey. They only drank the whiskey. That that comes later in the in the story of the of cultural exchange across the the West. But that comes probably it comes after the expedition. They actually ran out of of. Um, whiskey, mm-hmm. which was really a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> I would imagine. Well, <laughs> how, what it was a considered part of the pay, and they actually wrote in the journals that the the first time they again got to drink whiskey on the way back was when they were going down the Missouri River somewhere north of where Omaha is now, mm. and that that would have been in 1806. Mm-hmm. Well, now where where did they actually? This was along the Missouri River, or to to refresh our listeners' <laughs> memories. Um, so, where did they take i mean they they made they stayed and camped for a long time so they were able to replenish i would imagine well let, let me take you and and the listeners just quickly across the continent great lewis was with washington or was with jefferson in washington for 2 years he went then he said goodbye to thomas jefferson thomas jefferson wished him well he went to philadelphia to go shopping he bought things that I already mentioned, including fish hooks and candle wicks, um, things that they could trade, including beads. They brought a corn grinder. From Philadelphia, Philadelphia at the time was a very sophisticated, it was probably the most sophisticated city in, in cosmopolitan city in, the, in America at that point. Then he went on to Pittsburgh to pick up a keelboat. This was a a nice-sized boat, not huge, but a nice-sized boat that they would take with them down the river. Then he traveled down the Ohio River to Louisville, where he met William Clark, who he had chosen to accompany him and asked that he be a co-captain, not a subordinate to Lewis. Mm-hmm. There they picked up the Clark and the nine men from Kentucky, who Clark had handpicked. They traveled again down the Ohio River, and they spent the winter just outside of St. Louis at what they called um, Camp Dubois, hmm. the, the um, winter camp, the, the Wood River Camp. During that winter of 1803, Lewis and Clark went into St. Louis often to meet with dignitaries and get to know people, get to know people who were movers and shakers. And the men of the expedition spent the winter further preparing for the trip, drying corn, practicing their shooting because guns weren't very accurate at that point so they they were going to be able to they were going to have to shoot a lot of what they were going to eat so they had to be pretty good shots then in the spring of 1804 they left from a, a small town just a little to the west of St. Louis on the, that was the beginning of their journey on the Missouri River ah okay and at that point they were traveling upriver at this point, they'd been coming downriver. At this, and now they're going upriver with this boat laden with tons of provisions. They actually had to pull the boat across Missouri. The Missouri goes parallel across what is now the state of Missouri, and then at Kansas City starts north to what is now the confluence of 
South Dakota, Nebraska, and Iowa. Then it curves across South Dakota and goes up to North Dakota. In the center of North Dakota lived the Mandan, Enidatsa, and Arikara people. This was a major trading post for all of the Northland Indians. And the Idatsa, especially, were great travelers. These were very um, well, well-connected people. And when Lewis and Clark came up, they had seen lots of Europeans. They had seen a lot of French trappers. And Frenchmen made up many, and French, uh, French Indian men made up many of the boatmen who helped drag the boat up the river. Mm. So you think about them dragging this boat. Well, and you said ton. Right, and you said tons of provisions. I mean, you had mentioned in one, or there was a, there was a, uh, a, an entry from a journal in, in one point, they said when they got provisions, it was up to 14,000 pounds of yeah. provisions. Ooh. Yeah, that's seven, seven tons yeah. plus a heavy wooden boat. Right. So at the end of each day, they, they were divided up into squads. And some people were better shot, so they were the shooters. And then there were people who were the cooks. And these aren't clearly delineated in the journals, but we get the idea that they sent ahead people to cook the meal at the end of the day because they ate one hot meal a day. Then they carried leftovers with them to eat uh, for breakfast and for lunch the next day. So they would shoot something as early as they left the middle of May, 1804, from St. Charles. By the end of May, they were talking about picking wild strawberries. So we know that they that they were noticing what the plants and animals were already along the journey. They were looking for the buffalo. They'd heard about the buffalo, but they'd never seen one, let alone eaten one. Right. One day, York, who was Clark's slave, the only black man on the journey, he swam across to a sandbar and picked some greens, and that night they had greens with their supper. So we find we're having an experience of the foods that were indigenous to the area. Right. They, they caught fish. They, they were hunting deer. One of the sweet entries to me is on uh, Lewis's birthday, or Clark's birthday, he had a fruit salad, and they picked all the wild fruit that they could find, and they poured whiskey on it. So he had kind of a fruit salad for his birthday. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> well, they shot their first buffalo right around the area where I grew up, near what is called Vermilion, South Dakota, and what is now Vermilion, South Dakota, along the Missouri River. And they just thought this, they hit their payday, because these men liked their meat. Meat was the, the considered the top of the food chain. It mm-hmm. was considered the best thing they could eat. They ate some of it fresh. They dried some of it for jerky that they could carry with them. And they shot as many as nine buffalo a day. So there's they ate a lot of meat, but they also were eating fruits and vegetables. At the same time that they shot the buffalo, they also made a plum tart. Clark talks about how they picked plums that were ripe and they made delicious tarts. They were delightful. I think that's just hilarious to well, think that they were eating something that, that we would buy in an upscale coffee shop. That's right. And not only, I mean, it, you know, humorous to, to think that they would make something as, as we think delicate as that, but it was keeping them alive, which was really important. They were, that was a, a very smart thing. Well, you know, I want to know more about some of the particulars. Um, and we're, when we come back after a short break, I'm going to ask you about some of the more unusual items that they might have found along their trip. 
You're listening to Never in Love by the Four Lincolns on the Heritage Radio Network.org. know what a foodie is, but what's foodiness? Foodiness is turning us into those chubby, slushy, slurping, lounge chair-bound morons in Wally, plugged in, pumped full of sugar, and brain dead. Chef Erica Wides is here to fight against foodiness. You have to keep drinking the Let's Get Real Kool-Aid for it to start to work. Let's Get Real. Rediscover real food every Tuesday at 6.30 p.m. on heritageradionetwork.org. We'd like to send a special thank you to our latest business member, Byright Market in San Francisco. Byright is a grocery store that features organic and locally produced goods. They build meaningful relationships with each of their extended family. The food they make and sell connects staff, guests, producers, and the environment. In this way, Byright creates community through food. For more information, visit www.buyrightmarket.com. To learn more about becoming a business member, email us, info at heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, we're back on A Taste of the Past, and I'm talking with Mary Gunderson, who um, made a study of the food of Lewis and Clark's expedition. And Mary, you coined a very interesting word to describe your work. You coined a word, paleocuisinology. Tell me about paleocuisinology. What do you really mean by that? Well, that's the word that I use to describe the study of the food and drink of the past. I coined the word before the paleo diet became very popular. Uh-huh. However, the roots of the paleo diet are really what we eat today. Mm-hmm. Well, you were just talking about meat, that the, um, the people on the expedition ate a lot of meat. Right? And modern-day 21st century people like meat as well. Mm-hmm. Vegans and vegetarians notwithstanding, meat is still an important part of our diet. Mm-hmm. So, uh, go ahead. No, I was just saying, I think paleocuisinology is a terrific word. I mean, it just sort of covers all the bases. And, you know, it, gets, it covers all yeah. the bases, and it, it, it makes it sound a little more... A little more fun than just food history. It's not not quite so serious, but I'm deadly serious about the facts. But I like to think that food history can be something that we can really relate to. Mm-hmm. 
because what we ate then leads into what we eat now. And many things that people ate 200 years ago, such as jerky, are still very popular. Mm-hmm. We eat the, the members of the expedition were very tuned in to what they ate at home, which was foods influenced by the, what is now Holland, or what is Holland, England, Ireland, Scotland, Germany. They, there were a lot of soups and breads. They also leavened that with the foods that were introduced to them by the people who already lived here, corn, uh, wild things that they found, squashes, and they incorporated those into their diet, and that is very evident in what they ate. Now, this changed after they, they spent the winter in, North, in what is now North Dakota among the Mandan and Idatsa. They, again, had a lot of access to buffalo, corn, squash, and beans, but as they traveled west, they used those provisions that they resupplied with. But as they traveled further west and reached the mountains, the diet changed dramatically because that was no longer agriculture country or That's buffalo right, country. Right. Well, now back to you mentioned soup was part you know part of the regular diet in the 1800s on the on the dinner table. A meal would begin with soup. Um, we know from in culinary history something that came about in the late 1700s, but. I was interested to see that they made and had recipes for and packed so much portable soup. Tell us about portable soup. Yes, portable soup is really the precursor of the bouillon cube. And it was a staple food for armies and navies. It was a staple food on boats as well as traveling armies. It was really soup that was boiled down and strained and boiled down and strained until really what you were left with is kind of the gel. When we make beef soup out of bones, the way the, the, the broth sets when it's in the refrigerator and it becomes like a gel, the, this was really portable soup. And the recipe that I have in the book cooks it down to it almost looks like, like a piece of, of dried fruit probably yeah. or like well it, if you've ever pliable. right the the demi gloss if you've ever bought the demi gloss and it's exactly, a, a exactly. rubbery oh, and that right. that is what it is yeah the fruit gel <laughs> exactly <laughs> that that is that is what it is in in the in the french term so they carried this with them so they would have this sort of convenience food and we know that they ate the last of their portable soup as they crossed the rocky mountains they were Kind of at the end of their rope at that point, they had they'd gotten over the mountains a little later than they should have. It was September. The, it was snowing. They had 10 inches of snow. They were trudging over the mountains. Their guide didn't seem real reliable. They had some poor quality horses, and they were sitting and shivering, and they said they drank the last of their portable soup. Now, you can imagine they didn't have the benefit of our food processing, so there probably was a bit of lard left in this demi-glace, in this portable soup, and it was probably somewhat rancid by that point. Mm. We have to remember this, that they they had access to fresh food throughout the, the trip, but they also were using food they carried with them, and they couldn't be too picky if something was spoiled. And during the winter... As I'm, I'm jumping ahead here, but during the winter that they spent at Fort Clatsop, it rained every day but 12, and it was cloudy every day but 6. So they had a rough time drying the elk that they 
that they shot and drying the fish, a lot of things they ate were just on the edge of spoiled. So that's kind of, we don't think of them as surviving, but food was survival, and it wasn't always delicious. Survival is not necessarily always delicious. Right. But on the other hand, they did, because, you know, through, through these uh, survival techniques, I would imagine, they, they became inventive, and they also learned a lot from the Native Americans they met along the way. Pemmican, in particular, is something that, that um, was developed by early explorers. Um, well, it was, it's actually an ancient food that, that people have been drying food as long as they have, have been, been trying to find ways to preserve. They were eating pemmican. Um, in, Indian tribes used pemmican in, the, in, in meat-eating areas. They would dry buffalo or deer or elk and pound it usually with dried berries. And then they would have something that, they could, that, that the, the men could carry along when they went hunting. The women could carry along if they were gardening or out gathering uh, foods. In areas where they had meat, they made it out of meat. Further west, where roots were really the basis of the diet, along with some fish, they would dry the, the roots with dried fruit, and then that would be something. So this idea of having a desiccated sort of food that could be, again, a convenience food was was very common. Right. Well, I, knew trail, tra- I knew trail I mix too. would, yeah, trail mix would come into it at some point. This was, exactly. this was their trail mix, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, well, tell me, what, what were some of the, um, uh, there anything that was lasting that we that we consider a sort of a common food or or a, a food that we know today that came from these exchanges with the Native Americans they met along the way? Roots. You mentioned a lot of root vegetables. Well, these root vegetables are things that are that still grow out in the Northwest. The Nez Perce gather wapato every spring. The yampa, the kaust. These are all things that are not commercially available. Mm. So Lewis and Clark would compare them to things that they that were familiar to them, a potato or a, a new potato. The cows tasted something thing like a sweet potato. I would say that nothing, it was more of a, of a coming together of ideas. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the foods that, a lot of the new plants and plants that they discovered didn't really become widely eaten, but Lewis and Clark were among the first to, were the first to name many of them for oh, Europeans and, and then Americans in the eastern part of, of now what is America. Another interesting thing that they ate that I just want to mention is they did get to eat whale. Mm. And they, it was a big deal for the Chinook and the Clatsop Indians to have this whale wash up on shore, and Clark described that the texture was kind of spongy. And the taste was something like pork fat or beaver, which huh, they also ate. Yeah. Well, I know fat, you had mentioned fat a couple different times in, the, um, in their food. And fat, of course, was, was a real necessity in their diet because it you know, gave them the calories they needed. Uh, there was a description that you included um, in your book that uh, was one of their writings. They said one, they, somebody had shot a bear, and one bear yielded six gallons of fat 
and 400 pounds of meat. Well, that so that was that was pretty good for a crew of what 20. How, how many were on? How how many people made up the crew generally? 25, 40. When they went up the river from St. Louis to Fort Mandan, there were about 50. Wow, men. wow, it's a lot of people people to feed. All right. Then about 20 of those men left. They, they were the, the watermen, the French watermen. They went downriver back to St. Louis. And at Fort, Cla- at, at Fort Mandan, Sacagawea joined the expedition because her husband, Charbonneau, said that they would need somebody who could translate for them into Shoshone, and that was Sacagawea. So when they left Fort Mandan in the spring of 1805, there were 31 men, one woman, young woman, she was probably a teenager, and her baby, who was two months old, plus the dog, Seaman. And, so she, yeah, and she, she, was, um, and she was quite an accomplished cook, from what the notes read. She was part of Clark's squad, and because she was a woman, she probably did get to do a lot of the cooking. What, what was interesting to me was what she brought to the expedition in terms of her knowledge of native foods. She would have been, she was accustomed to going out and gathering prairie turnips and roots and um, dried fruit. So she knew how to get all those things. Plus, she was a nursing mother. So she knew foods that, this isn't written down anywhere, but, but we know because she was a nursing mother, women at that point knew that they had to get certain things in order to keep their milk so they could feed their babies. Mm. And Sacagawea added vegetables to this very meat-heavy diet, and there are examples of that in the journals. And it just shows it takes a mom to get the kids, quote-unquote, to eat their vegetables. (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting. Well, certainly we've come a long way with our our freeze-dried Camping foods and yes. <laughs> and uh, what is it that the astronaut ice cream and things like that, but certainly um, to see that one can live off the land uh, sometimes meagerly, but you know hunters and gatherers, it was I mean just stop and think three years and all those men to feed that it was a real exercise in planning and shopping shopping for provisions. Well, it's interesting interesting study and. Um, what amazes me, again, is to think that as just as few years ago, I mean, we're talking a couple hundred years, most of America that we know today did not belong to America. So these were, they were really exploring all new territories and, and trying to see what, you know, what the survival techniques would be like. And it was a wonderful journey, absolutely. And I thank you for exploring the food of that journey because it's it certainly is an eye-opener. Um, the book that you published, it was like, oh, about, Five years ago or so? The book came out in 2003 at the beginning of the Bicentennial. Oh, okay, Bicentennial of Lewis and Clark's Expedition. So let me just repeat the title again. It's The Food Journal of Lewis and Clark, Recipes for an Expedition. Mary, it's been a real pleasure talking with you, and thank you for sharing all your information with us, and I hope that our listeners will tune in again to A Taste of the Past. This has been your host, Linda Palaccio. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website 
or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.